This is Veterans Voices with Kevin Berger, Memories and Stories of Minnesota's Korean War Veterans. When I first started meeting with Korean veterans, of course, I assumed that they would have combat stories. But I learned that in this era, this was the Korean War, into the Cold War, this era, there were many people who enlisted or were drafted who never stepped foot on the Korean Peninsula. They were assigned elsewhere. I'm currently the president of the Minnesota Korean War Veterans Chapter 1. A veteran I spoke with, Ed Valley, who in fact did serve in Korea, he kind of gave me a perspective on service in that era. And I talked to a lot of Korean War veterans that spend their whole time in Germany. Hmm. Yet they're Korean War veterans because they served during that period of time, which incidentally was June 25th, 1950 to January 31st, 1955. That is the date that Congress declared the eligibility for Korean War veterans so that anybody outside that window would not be eligible for any benefits of any that were reflected on the the war. That was a luck of the draw, you know. Uh, Guys that uh, spent two years in Germany during the Korean War, um, good duty, you know, good for them. You know, and they, they enjoyed their tour. Other guys got the, the other side of the coin. They went to Korea. And I, I found out that, as this according to the, to the VA, uh, there were 5.7 million service members who served worldwide in the Korean era. 5.7 million, but the ones who served in theater, 1.7 million. I think when you talk to someone who is a Korean era veteran, there's an assumption that they thought that this was a vicious war, that they were in the battle. And it was a little bit of the luck of the draw. It was kind of a crapshoot who went and who didn't. But just because they weren't in Korea doesn't mean the service wasn't tough. I met one veteran. He was stationed in Tokyo for his service, and he counted down the days until he could get out of there and get home. I had two years, four months, 28 days, and four hours overseas. Larry C. Schmidt. I was in the United States Army from January or November of 51 to November of 54. Were you uh, drafted or did you enlist? I enlisted. I enlisted. Everybody I'd, I knew was already had been drafted. The VA says half of those who served in the Korean era enlisted and the other half were drafted. Uh, people often enlisted because they had a better choice of the branch of service that they would be in, and in some cases, the assignment. And they weren't all men. I uh, spoke with Ruth Perry. Ruth enlisted during World War II and, uh, you know, really among the first of that group of women to be in the military. But she wanted to stay in. She was in the service for a total of 20 years. And during the Korean War era, there were not a lot of women in Korea, and the ones that were, were there were primarily nurses. I was only going to go in for one tour. It ended up being, uh, I became a career one and was in 20 years. I always loved our country, and it's love of our country that I went in to serve my country. I love my flag, and, I, and there isn't anything I wouldn't do for this country. My kid brother, he, he was going to, to Korea, and I was on my way to Germany. So he went one way, and I went the other. 
you just put in for overseas and where they send you, it's the chances you take. Mm -hmm. And I lucked out. And my mom had us both dead. And my kid brother did get hurt in Korea. But me, I was well taken care of over in Germany. What were you doing at that time? Well, my main job at that time was activity director of the women of all the vets, both male and female, over on that on the base called Erding Air Depot. It was a small base. She was the activities director, and so they had different teams, and it was her job to to keep people active and busy and to make their service pleasant. Softball, not baseball, softball. And we had ping pong, and we had horseshoe. We had people come down and had tournaments for these. You know, you learned a lot about jobs when you were in the military. I thought, anyhow, that was my feeling. I was very happy with the different assignments I got. I didn't always know, like athletics. I had never done much with athletics, but I learned to to sign them up, to set them up, and do what they had to do to be in a different sports program. So your job, part of your job, was to kind of keep everybody's morale up. Well, yeah, it was always everybody's job was to keep our morale up, no matter where you were. To your knowledge, were there any women that were sent to Korea? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there were women there in Korea, too. In all those di- they, in different bases over there, was, we had women. I just happened to luck out and get Germany. Women had separate dining hall from the men, and we had the best food because <laughs> we had the best cooks. <laughs> How were women regarded in that era? We were not very highly regarded. They thought we were all bad. Like, what kind of bad? Like, floozies? Well, sleeping with the guys and sleep, you know. That and, was the reputation of women yeah, who were in yeah, the service? Yes, but when I got in and there wasn't, my mom found out it wasn't like that. When I, before I went in the service, I never went to bed before two or three in the morning. I was home, but I never went to bed. Come home from the service, and I went to bed at nine o'clock. My mom almost had a heart attack. She, she, boy, after that, she was thrilled to death with the service. Gave you some discipline. Yeah. Well, you told me that they had a lot of rules, like about how you wore your hair. Oh yes, we had to have a permanent. In those days, the women had to have a permanent, whether you wanted it or not. <laughs> Where today they they do not have to have it unless they want it. How do you think you looked in a permanent? Well, I don't know. I had it curled, and uh-huh. I could wear my hat. It looked a lot neater than it does with those with straight hair. Uh-huh. That I know, uh-huh. but I still like my gray hair and my straight hair the best. Uh-huh. And I haven't had a permanent since I got out of the service. Uh-huh. With World War II, uh, you know, there was the attack on Pearl Harbor and Hitler and, you know, but with Korea, it seems like people, did people understand why the U.S. was in Korea? No, even the militaries didn't understand why we were there and didn't think we belonged there, and, uh, and still don't think we belong there or in Vietnam. But you do what you're told to do in the military, whether you think you belong there or not. If they tell you you're going, you go and you do your job. 
and do whatever they tell you to do. That's one thing you learn in a service, and I think it's good for everybody if they if they had some service time where you learn to respond when you're told to do something, you do it without arguing over whether you're going to or not. You want to argue, of course, but you don't. You do what you're told to do. She's retired now. She lives in Albert Lee. She has been the Grand Marshal of a parade. Uh, Her service as a woman veteran has been acknowledged. As a matter of fact, she was Minnesota's Woman Veteran of the Year in 2019, and she was honored at a a game by the Minnesota Lynx that she's very proud of. The Lynx girls gave me a basketball with all their initials, and I carried that basketball back with my award. I was so proud of it and so pleased with the Lynx. They wouldn't have gave me the award if they hadn't thought I earned it, but I felt that every woman vet earned it, not just me. So what did being in the service do for you? It taught me a lot. It taught me, I grew up, basically. I didn't think I would need to grow up. I thought I knew all about life. You know how you are at, at 20, well, 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there. You think you know everything. Well, you soon learn in the service you don't know everything. You got a lot to learn. I graduated from high school in 1951, and I worked as a meat cutter for a year and a half, and then went into the Air Force because at that time they were they, the draft was open and we were being drafted into the Army. So a lot of us went into the the Navy or the Air Force or the Marines. Roy Sharon served in the Korean era. Now, he was the youngest of 12 kids, so his older brothers were in World War II. Six brothers, and they were all in the Army and one was in the Navy. And they all saw combat. And they all came home, one badly wounded, Another one slightly wounded. That's why I chose the Air Force, so I wouldn't see combat. Roy had worked as a meat cutter in his hometown of Cloquet, and when the Air Force heard that, they assigned him to being a meat cutter, and he served in Guam. So they had to get him to Guam, and uh, if you're in the Air Force, I assume you think maybe a plane would drop you off, but no such luck. He wound up being on a transport ship for a very long and rather unpleasant trip. Well, the first night of San Francisco, this was in February, many of the troops were ill, seasick already, except me. I'm proud of that fact. So I go to bed, and I had duty at midnight, to guard one of the decks. So I'm doing quite well. I wake up, I go into the latrine, and the floor of this latrine was full of, is there a better word for vomit? Vomit. And the troughs, which were meant for urination, were full of vomit. I slipped. Fall on the floor, and about that time, the the ship lists, and all of the vomit came out of the troughs onto me and the floor. I got sick, <laughs> of course, and I was sick for about 11, 12 days after that. 
the Korean War era, of course, was also the Cold War era, and uh, I met a veteran named James Bresnahan. He grew up in Hibbing and was in ROTC at what was the, then the College of St. Thomas. And being in ROTC was a way to defer the draft, but he was activated after he uh, graduated. I was an air and intelligence officer. And wound up in Rapid City, South Dakota. Was it a dangerous uh, role that you played? Well, I, I, in that B-36, we had two 10,000-pound atomic bombs in the aircraft. The, the key was that the ignition to ignite those bombs was in a separate aircraft so that we could not make a mistake because somebody else had to make that mistake in another <laughs> aircraft. And, and, um, and it's human error, it could have happened. You know, the Korean War was what to call the Cold War. And I was an observer at different bases. So in case our bomb squad went there, so for instance, I went to Thule, Greenland. Thule, Greenland is 600 miles from the North Pole. And when I was in Thule, Greenland, I had two hours of sunlight, and it never got above 25 below zero. So the mess hall was open all the time, and you could buy a a glass of, a two ounce glass of whiskey <laughs> for 40 cents. And then they had two for one. <laughs> and in that scenario, when I was up in Thule, Greenland, we had 400 lawnmowers, and there wasn't a piece of grass within 4,000 miles of that place. It had the lowest AWOL rate uh, in the United States Air Force because there was no place to go except over the ice cap. After his service was over, he was able to use the GI Bill to get a law degree, and he was in the second graduating class at what was then the William Mitchell College of Law. The GI Bill was really an incentive, and one of the other veterans I spoke with, Dave Thomas, Grew up in a small town in North Dakota, and he saw this as a chance to get his education if he would uh, put in his years of service. And he was stateside the whole time, uh, but he was able to use that to get his, uh, his college degree. I served in the Air Force for four years, um, but I was at the tail end of the Korean War, uh, and I went in because... Uh, their benefits would have been discontinued. So that was my primary reason. My uh, time was all in the United States. Uh, I went in in 1955, in January, the middle of, uh, middle of January and January 30th, the benefits ended. So that's <laughs> an unselfish reason <laughs> or a selfish reason for my enlistment. He was originally from North Dakota, 
and served in Washington State. He was like um, an air traffic controller, and they were watching for enemy planes in case they would come down from the polar ice cap. And what they do is when you... um, There's radar sites that are scattered around the, the country, and this was called the Pine Tree Line, which was Bellingham, Washington, and... Cheney, Washington, and Yak, Montana, mm-hmm. and Minot, all along the, the border between Canada. And then there was another line that was up right up in the border of, of Alaska. And then, of course, the Arctic Circle, there was one. And so I was on the Cheney, Washington site, and I was there for the whole four years. Um, good duty for me. Uh, learned a lot, had had uh, uh, some good experiences and so on. We'd work real hard on a, on a shift or whatever. I mean, to the point where sometimes we, we call it the hill, which was the radar site. You'd come off of that with just a mounting headache because you're controlling maybe nine aircraft or something like that on a mission. And then when you get all done with the mission and you're bringing them on back to base, you have airplanes that have used more fuel than others, and so they're running out of fuel. So now you start joggling them around to make sure that the one with the lowest fuel gets into the base first and, and lands, and that's our thing. And sometimes the stress was unbelievable because, I mean, you're just doing, and you're you're trying to take care of that sort of thing. But... Um, uh, you know, you'd do that and you'd be, you know, you'd come back and then you'd get some goofy, dumb, you know, thing that somebody would say, well, we should have an inspection of quarters or something. you say, oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just goofy things like yeah. that, you know. Yeah. Uh, my best chance of, of really doing things is going to be with an education, advanced education. Yeah. What, tell me about your college background. I went to Eastern Washington State College. They had about 1,400 students when I went. What did you study? Business. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is that because of my background in uh, mechanics and my strong proficiency in that, um, when I applied at Boeing, they put me in their engineering department, and so I became a quasi-engineer for Boeing. But then he and his wife, both from the upper Midwest, they wanted to come back this way, and he wound up getting a job at Jostens in Owatonna, where he uh, has lived his life ever since then. There's a manufacturing company in uh, Owatonna that makes a window components and uh, he was one of their top executives. He was in charge of 350 people. And again, that, that uh, GI Bill helped position him for that career. Veterans Voices Korea is produced by Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund online at minnesotavets.org.